All right, so our text today is in Ezekiel. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ezekiel chapter 37. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 6. And uh, as we read, I just want you to be thinking about what this text might mean for you today as a Christian comes and delivers the, the, the word from God today. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for your blessing on Christian today that you would allow him to speak what you would have for us all to hear today. I pray that you would, you would help our hearts to be stilled um, and for belief to enter us. There's been, it's been so much that we've all been facing over the last year and uh, some of it deeply personal, some of it that's you know, it's caused us to, to doubt. And I pray today that you would help us to believe that you're the God that breathes life into dry bones. So, Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring to us all today belief. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Awesome. Well, as Nate said, my name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I'm really excited to get to preach this morning and to talk about this text. It's a really cool text. In fact, I remember in high school, I had a friend uh, who was uh, kind of on the fringes of the church, wasn't really involved with the church, didn't really want to be involved with the church, but he went to a lot of hardcore concerts, a lot of hardcore rock and roll concerts, and him and I were at a concert one time, and I was telling him about this passage, and he went home and read it and said, if God's that rock and roll, then maybe I can believe in this God. And so um, I am hoping that uh, this will be a, a really great passage for us to study together this morning. Before we dive into it, though, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, study our text together. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for bringing us here in this place. Lord, I pray that today you would give us permission not to, just, not to leave ourselves at the door, but to be fully present to bring all of our hurts and pains, our joys, our frustrations, and lay them before you. Lord, I pray this morning uh, that your spirit would fill me as I preach, and Lord, I also pray above all else that you would get glory in this place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all the good and the lovely and gracious gifts you give us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So yesterday, last night, I had the pleasure of doing my second wedding that I've done in the COVID times. And so you're going to have to forgive me. I'm still kind of in wedding mode. And so if I, you know, present to you for the first time Pastor Nate or tell you that Roger may kiss the church or something like that, you're going to have to forgive me. 
But in doing the wedding, it was this huge celebration because all of a sudden this couple that had been planning on getting married before COVID started and had postponed their wedding to celebrate with others uh, was finally able to get married last night. It was a big party. It was super fun in a backyard. And it made me think about my own story and my own wedding. It made me think about my wife and I, my wife Jocelyn, and how we got to know each other. When I was 14 years old, I, was, uh, I planned on going on a mission trip to Ecuador. And I was going to go on this mission trip, and I remember going to the training and sitting in the back of the room. You're gonna have to, I was like this tall, gangly-looking kid. It's hard to believe now. But I was sitting there, and I remember looking across the room and seeing this really cute blonde girl. In fact, I think we have a picture of that. Yeah, there we go. I remember looking across the room and seeing this really cute blonde girl that was sitting there and being like, that seems like somebody that I want to hang out with. And so I remember getting to know her over the next year. We went on this mission trip together. This is us uh, probably poorly digging something um, when we were 14 in Quito, Ecuador. And we got to know each other over time. And a year later, we went on that mission trip again. And I remember, you're, never, you're not supposed to ask somebody out on a mission trip. That's like a mission trip rule, is don't ask somebody on a date while you're on a mission trip. And so I didn't. I waited until the plane wheels were off the ground. And then I asked Jocelyn if she would go on a date with me. And Jocelyn and I started to get to know each other, and we started dating. And we dated through high school, and we went through the, the peaks of high school together. High school dances, and homecoming, and all of the fun things that it entailed. And we went to college in different places, and over that time, Jocelyn, full disclosure, actually broke up with me twice, uh, which was hot because I knew she was sensible. And during that time, we, went, I, we did long distance together. In fact, we did long distance over thousands of miles when I lived in Germany and she was in Texas in school. And when Jocelyn graduated, she moved up to Denver where I was still finishing school, and when I finished school, we got, or when I was, while I was finishing school, we got married. And this August, it'll be eight years together. And I was thinking through over the last, we've been together 15 years now. Since, this, since we were 14 years old, we've been together. And I was thinking about all those 15 years and all the peaks that we've gone through, all of the joys that we've gotten to celebrate together, all of the high things. But then as I was writing this wedding sermon yesterday, I was also remembering something that the pastor that married us said. He said, Christian, marriage is a joy, but it's also the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. And at the time, I remember thinking, that's not a nice thing to say to someone who's already kind of scared as a, as a really young kid to get married. But he was right. Because while there are so many peaks in marriage, and while I love my wife, and there have been so many joys and excitements in our marriage. There's also been valleys. Fear of trying to figure out what's next with our jobs. Health scares and unknowns. There's been pressures and mental health struggles or even the late night frustrations with one another. While there have been high mountaintops, there's also been desert valleys that we've had to walk through. And I know this is a universal thing because we all just went through a pandemic together. And during that time, while there were people that experienced high highs in those moments, we also experienced low lows. 
We've faced difficult, a difficult season and struggle. We've faced hurt and pains over the last two years. And for some of us, we've faced death and loss. And this doesn't even touch on the old wounds that we've experienced in life because life is full of mountains and valleys. And it's been, and for many of us, as we're starting to come out of this COVID time, for a lot of you, it's the first time I'm getting to see your face, which is really nice. As we're starting to come out of these COVID times, it's made us reflect and take a breath, and in doing so, brings up some of those valleys and how, and it makes us ask the question, how do we find life on the other side of the desert valley that's been COVID? And even so, how do we just find life on the other side of any desert valley in life? Well, I think that the book of Ezekiel actually meets us in this place. It meets us in this place of languishing sorrow, the place of death and discouragement. And in Ezekiel 37, there's this stunning picture of the God who meets us in the midst of the desert valley and gives us life. And so if you have your smartphone or Bible, open up to Ezekiel 37. But before we jump into Ezekiel 37, two quick things. One, this is one of the most dense passages in Scripture. And so there is a 0% chance that we can cover all of it today. And so what I would encourage you to do is spend time reading it this week, thinking about it this week, meditating on it this week, um, because it's one of those passages that every time you read it, you see something new. On the, the other thing we've got to recognize before we jump into it, though, is that to understand what's going on here, we have to understand the context of where we've been so far. Ezekiel opens up with this young priest named Ezekiel sitting on a hill. And he's sitting on this hill and he's pondering what his future is hold. He's just graduated what's the equivalent of seminary. He's ready to be sent off into ministry. And he's sitting at the top of this hill. And as he sits there, God appears to him in a vision. Usually this would be an incredible thing as God meets his people. He comes to say something to them. But instead... In this moment, God speaks to Ezekiel and gives him a warning of the things that are to come. See, in 605 BC, just a few years prior to the writing of Ezekiel, God, or the Israelite people were taken into exile by the Babylonian people. They were conquered. And what the Babylonians would do is they would conquer people and then they would deport them back to Mesopotamia in order to integrate them into their society. And so they, t- they have taken part of the Israelite people to Mesopotamia. But what will happen just a few years later as Ezekiel receives this vision is God says it's going to happen again and more people are going to be taken into exile. The people of God will be exiled due to rejecting God and his ways in the world. And it's, it's kind of a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around in the West because we're such transient people to begin with. We move here and there for jobs. We uh, go on trips around the world. Like, it's easy for us to travel. But you have to picture, this isn't like them going on vacation, but this deportation is more like what we've seen in Syria, where people have lost their homes and have been brought somewhere else seeking uh, because of fear of the unknown, fear and insecurity. And they've had to go somewhere else, and they've lost their ancestral pace and land. But the thing is that it was far more than this as well, because actually in the ancient Near East, the gods that you worshipped were tied to the physical land that you were on. For many of the people, the rituals, the power of the deities that they worshipped was tied to the very land itself. 
And you actually see in Israel, when they start off, this isn't what they believe. But as you read the Old Testament, it starts to get into their bones, this idea. And slowly over time, they start to believe this as well. You still see this today, actually. This is why the Temple Mount is so, in Jerusalem is so hotly disputed by different religions. Because they believe there's something powerful tied to the place. But as God speaks to Ezekiel, he explains that this new exile is because of the ways that they've decided and the things that they've decided to follow after. In a striking image in chapter 8, God actually leads Ezekiel into the temple. And as he leads Ezekiel into this back way through the temple, he looks on the walls and he sees these false gods that are painted on the walls of the temple. And as he walks into the throne room, into the area where God would be worshipped by the people of Israel, he walks into this place and he looks around the room and they're doing the right rituals, they're saying the right words, but they're worshipping false gods. And in chapter 10, Ezekiel sees God actually leave the temple. God's presence rises out of the temple and leaves but there's a word of hope in the midst of all of that. It's God's presence leaves the temple. It doesn't just float off into the sky to go somewhere unknown. But God's presence goes to the east where the exile will be. God actually goes before his people to prepare the way for the exile. It's a heart-wrenching moment, right? As the people of God have abandoned his ways and God has left them to the path that they've chosen and from here, the cycle begins where Ezekiel proclaims God's just judgment over Israel and the wages of sin. But he also starts to write about God's forgiveness and mercy and the hope of God going before his people to the exile. That while other gods are tied to land and place, that Yahweh isn't. That Yahweh can go before his people wherever his people are. And he speaks to the beautiful restoration that God brings. This actually all comes to a head in Ezekiel 36, it, where the, <clears throat> after all the judgment, the exile of the people to a foreign place and land, and the leaving of the temple, God gives a new hope. He points out that he will restore and he will renew. And he points out he's the one that makes all things new. He points the restoration of the community, the nation, and the land, that he will do the work because he knows that his people are unable to do it. And that this new place will be a place of flourishing and joy, which is the opposite of the exile. And in one of the most striking images in the Bible, God tells them that he'll take their heart of stone and he'll give them a heart of flesh. And it's this beautiful picture because it's not just like a patching up of an organ, like putting in a pacemaker, but it's actually taking it out and putting something brand new in. And the heart in the ancient world was this picture of where all physical and the life of the soul flowed from. All life came from your heart. And so in this place, God is saying, I will give you new life. I'm not just going to fix your old life somehow and patch it up, but I'll give you new life is the picture given. He'll transform them from the inside out. And it's with this beautiful picture of renewal and restoration that we arrive at Ezekiel 37. But as we arrive at Ezekiel 37, what's interesting is after all of this beautiful picture of restoration, it almost goes backwards to something 
totally desolate when it says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And then he said to me, son of man, do you think these bones can live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. See, after this beautiful picture of renewal and flourishing, God leads Ezekiel into the heart of a desolate and dim valley. It's this unnamed place, and it's actually meant to evoke something in us, to make us think of like the Sahara Desert, to think of those places where there is no life. And you can imagine the picture. If you, can, if you put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes, he's looking around this desert, and he steps out. You can almost hear the crunch under his feet as he looks down. And he looks out and he sees bones. And as he's looking at the bones, all of a sudden it dawns on him this horror that these are human bones. That phrase there that says very many bones actually means like mounds of bones, like that it's covering the land. That some tragic event has occurred here. Some kind of genocide or lost battle has happened. Beyond that, there's another horror that's tied to it. See, for a long time, he says they are dry and desolate. They're dry bones. And this means they've been outside for a long time. In the ancient Near East world, when you fought somebody, if you wanted to curse their people and curse their land, you didn't give them a proper burial. You left their bones out in the open. It was a way of proclaiming judgment over people. It was a way of cursing them to the other nations. See, these are old, cursed bones from a great war and tragedy. And as Ezekiel tries to take this all in, in this scene of utter hopelessness, God speaks up, and you can almost hear him whispering over Ezekiel's ear as he says, do you think these bones can live? And it's interesting, because Ezekiel answers God in trust. He says, oh Lord God, you know. And then God proceeds to do something incredible. Look what it says in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, which that word rattling can also mean like a thundering almost. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our, bone, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. So therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open up your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. God tells him to prophesy over these bones. And so Ezekiel does, and as he, he watches in total amazement as the bones knit back together. And I don't know if you noticed all the details in the passage about the sinews and the skin, but that stood out to me because you've got to remember, uh, Ezekiel as a priest was all, wasn't just like a holy man of God, but he was also a holy butcher of God. They were the ones that did the sacrifices in the temple. And you can almost imagine that in fascination, he's watching as he has laid out animals for sacrifice. Now he's watching as God takes life and puts it back into bones. That God fills these bones with life, that he reassembles someone in front of him. And I can imagine Ezekiel watching in wonder as this is occurring before him. But there's this problem, right? As he does it, there's no life in these bodies. They're still sitting there. These newly formed humans, no life in their eyes. An entire army of lifeless people sit before Ezekiel in the desert. But God actually wants to do something more. He says, they don't have my breath. Which that word breath and actually that word wind, they both are the word ruach in Hebrew. Which is the word spirit. It's the word spirit over and over and over again in this. They don't have my spirit. They don't have my spirit. Command my spirit to go into them. And when he prophesies the Spirit over them, those people rise with life and vigor. These bones have been given life, and the people of Israel in this vision have been restored. But God's not done yet. Because notice, even as they have physical life, even as they have this new life, the first thing that they say back to God isn't praise for new life, but a cry of hopelessness. Because for them... Life is nothing apart from place, apart from their homeland. It's nothing apart from the place where they've worshipped God. See, place has meaning. It's why so many people return to where they're from, even after they move away. It's the reason why our homes pull on us over time. But even with, and even with the resurrection of God, this exile feels hopeless and oppressive. But notice how God responds to this. God doesn't scold them. God doesn't tell them, forget about it. I take it all back, go back to being bones, and then make them bones again. But instead, God meets them in that place and gives them a vision of ultimate hope. I'll raise you from the dead. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll give you life, and I'll give you land. And then he says at the end, and I promise I'll do it. The picture painted here is one of ultimate renewal, not just for Israel, but for the world. He paints this picture now that he, this is the God that will make all things new. Or as Sally Lloyd-Jones put it, that all sad things will come untrue. And it's a stunning picture of hope right on the heels of the picture of lifelessness. And it's one that we need in this season. This week I spoke to numerous people who are feeling the pressures coming out of COVID that are burnt out and exhausted. And I know for myself, I took a breath this week and I just realized how tired that I really was. And so in the midst of the valley of COVID, in the midst of the valleys of life, what do we do as we navigate 
the desert valley. I think there's two things that Ezekiel wants us to remember about God. The first is that we have to remember that God's Spirit gives us life in the valley of death. See, it's striking that's directly after this beautiful picture of Ezekiel 36 that for the first three verses, maybe one of the darkest pictures in scriptures portrayed. A vision of death, curse, and destruction. And what's been striking to me as I've studied this this week is that in the middle of this beautiful picture of restoration, these chapters reflecting on how God will beautifully restore all that is broken, there's this honest reflection on how hard the valley actually is. Ezekiel doesn't hide from the realities of brokenness and the results of sin, but rather he shows and acknowledges the ways that those things have invaded reality. And maybe it's striking because that's been our particular reality over the last year. Because so many of us have been languishing in COVID. A couple weeks ago, there was a New York Times article that was written by uh, social psychologist Adam Grant. And he pointed out how the predominant emotion of this season for most people in the West, for most Americans, is this feeling of languishing. It's not quite depression. It's not flourishing. And this is actually what he goes on to write. He says, languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing. It's the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're also not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. See, languishing dulls your motivation. It disrupts your ability to focus and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. And it appears to be more common than major depression. And in some ways, it may be a bigger risk factor for mental illness. And when I was reading this this week, I was like, oh yeah, no, that's a, I, I know that feeling. I've been there. And it hit me, not because it's the only because it's the feeling of COVID, but it's also uniquely probably the feeling in Albuquerque at times. Like a lot of people that I talk to feel like they're languishing at times in Albuquerque. It's one of the reasons I've been thankful for New City, of this vision for what life can be here. But many of my friends in the last year have decided to leave Albuquerque due to the brokenness that we see in our city. They've decided to go other places, to take other opportunities, to, uh, and go different ways. And some of that's out of God's leading, and some of that's out of what we just want to get out of here. A few weeks ago, I was at um, Marble Brewery with uh, some guys from my community group. And we were sitting there, we were having a beer together, and all of a sudden there was a bar fight outside and somebody pulled a gun. And everyone ran into the back of the building, and luckily no one was hurt, and the cops arrested the guy, and it was fine. But I remember going home that night with that feeling of languishing. Not because it was scary or wherever. I grew up in Albuquerque, like that's, I don't know. But because that feeling of is it going to get better? That feeling of that valley, the feeling of the dry bones, that feeling I imagine when Ezekiel looks out and he just sees mounds of bones everywhere and God says, do you think that there can be life? And Ezekiel kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, only you know God. See, many of us are languishing after this last year. And maybe you're in a good place right now, but the valley of dry bones is a universal part of life. 
at some point, I promise you, you'll experience it. And this valley is a place of discouragement and pain. But it's important to note that the valley is also not the end of the story. See, languishing in COVID or languishing in our city is not the final word. But notice what God does in the valley of death. God brings life where there was no life, inviting Ezekiel to see his power on display. He undoes, undoes the curse of the bones and knits them back together, bringing life where there was no life. He puts his spirit in his people, not just to give them physical but life, but to give them life with him. And he, puts his, and he invites us to live in this very same reality of flourishing. See, Jesus invites us to walk into that with him, to be filled with his spirit as well. And yet this beautiful concept is way easier to believe intellectually than it is in actuality. I've been thinking about Ezekiel, God's question to Ezekiel all week because I've wondered what my answer would be in the midst of it all. Because languishing and struggling may actually be the easy part. Because it doesn't require me to believe in God's spirit to do something new. But trusting in God's power to bring life in languishing is a much harder reality. But the beauty is the same part with the spirit, that we don't do this on our own. The spirit does it. God's breath breathed into us. And what is so shocking to me about this passage is it's not that God brings life where there was a glimmer of life, but God brings life where there's no life at all. God, by His Spirit, makes something new that was not merely languishing, but was dead. And in the valleys, God brings life from the curse of death. We have to remember that we serve the God that makes beautiful things out of the dust. The God who takes an army of the dead and restores them to life. And if God can do that with death, then he can certainly do that with our hearts, souls, and realities. Notice though, it isn't until the Spirit, of the, the Spirit enters the people of God that true life occurs. It's not until they encounter the power and presence, the breath, the wind of God that they are filled. And it begs the question for us, what are we searching for in life? Or maybe what are you searching for in life? Where are you trying to find life in? See, we're all trying to find fulfillment in something. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's the way you raise your kids. Maybe it's in your hobbies. Those are good gifts from God. But they're bad sources of life. All of these things, when they take the place of God, they function as distractions along the road of life, only temporarily giving us glimpses of what true life is. This week, one of my favorite um, authors, Jonathan Sharks, he's, a, he's an MBA writer actually, but he's a Christian. Uh, he writes for The Ringer. Um, wrote kind of a surprise piece that also surprisingly ran across The Ringer for the day. See, Jonathan Sharks was diagnosed with uh, cancer and a very aggressive form of cancer this last week. And he wrote a reflection on death and faith for a sports website. And it ran at the top of the page all week, but this, this, 
quote stood out to me in the middle of it. He described modern life this way. He said, modern life is a car headed towards a cliff's edge while billboards line both sides of the road, blocking the driver's view. And those billboards are all the distractions that society has to offer. Netflix, sports, movies, music, career. Everything you consume to avoid thinking about where you're ultimately headed. See, we live in a world that's asking us to find life in a lot of different places. But the only place that you'll find life in the midst of the valley is with Jesus. The only place you'll find life in the midst of the valley is through God, the God who makes all things new, the God who can take our languishing and turn it to joy, and the God who fills our bones with his spirit and gives us new life. See, all of us need new life, life that only God can bring by the power of his spirit. But this can feel hard, right? It can feel like this uphill battle dealing with the internal and external failings of our life, with the things that we've done and left undone, dealing with the pains of the others that have hurt us, dealing with the ways that it can feel like God has abandoned us. And this is where we have to realize that it's not just about life, but hope. Because the second thing that Ezekiel wants us to remember The first is that he wants us to remember that God gives us life in the midst of the valley of death, but he also wants us to remember God's power gives us hope and hopelessness. See, it's interesting to see how the bones respond, right? When they're knit back together, they cry out. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost because even to them in the midst of new life, life can feel lifeless to them. But look what God does. God doesn't leave them languishing. He doesn't let them wallow in their pain or struggle, but rather he meets them in the midst of it. He gives them a new vision for what is to come, one that transcends the boundaries of life in the here and now. See, there is a sure and certain future for all that follow Jesus based not on your own merit, but rather on God's determination to save and restore. The God that says, I will do it. Because the beauty of the gospel is that we have hope in Jesus. We have hope in Jesus who came to live with us, experiencing the pains and the pressures of life. In Jesus who sacrificed on our behalf that we could have life. In Jesus who one day will restore all the brokenness in the world, who will breathe life into our dry bones and lead us to a no place where there will be no tear or death or sadness anymore. And God's promise to his people at the end is not one of life now, but life eternal. It's both the picture of flourishing in the here and now and flourishing forevermore. See, we have hope in the future promise that God will make all things new. C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, writes this, that the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement and rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He's the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. And everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. See, the king of all things meets us in the midst of our languishing and gives us hope in his good news. He gives us hope that goes beyond 
a promise that's tied to a political line or a social program, but a hope anchored in Emmanuel, God with us. And in the ups and downs of life, we have to keep our eyes fixed on this horizon of hope. We have to fix our eyes on God and his work in bringing new life. Think of it this way. Uh, Florence Chadwick was a famous swimmer, and she would do long-distance swimming. And uh, one day she decided it was something she had trained for. It was actually a really big event at the time. She was going to swim from the coast of California to Catalina Island. And so she started swimming, and the boats were following her. And as she was swimming, all of a sudden a deep fog settled on the bay. And she swam, and she swam around, and she couldn't figure out where she was. And after swimming for 15 hours, which I don't even like being awake for 15 hours, let alone swimming for 15 hours, but after swimming for 15 hours, she finally gave up, got in the boat, only to find out once the fog lifted, she was only a mile from shore. A couple years later, she did it again. Started swimming, but the same thing happened. Fog settled. But this time, she made it to the shore. When she made it to the shore, they s- people were amazed. They said, how did you make it through the fog this time? And she said, I kept my eyes on the vision of the shoreline that I saw in the sunlight. And in the same way, in the midst of our hopelessness, in the midst of the hard things of life, in the midst of the valley of death, we keep our eyes on the horizon of Christ. We have to fix our lives on God and in his work in bringing new life. See, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty that Ezekiel points to, is that by the power of Jesus, we're transformed. We're given life in the desert. We're given hope in hopelessness. And we carry on the promise of God that one day he will make all things new. And so the question is this, do you believe it? Do you know the God that brings new life? Do you believe in the God that brings new life? Maybe you're feeling the weight of COVID as the season is changing. Or maybe you're here and you don't actually know Jesus and you're beginning to follow, or, and haven't begun to follow him. And maybe you're sitting here and like Ezekiel, you're wondering, will these bones live? But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has saved us by his grace, that he can make any bones live, no matter what you have done or left undone, that he gives us hope in his work on the cross and by his resurrection, he gives us life and promises that one day he will restore and that for all that call on him, he gives, uh, saves and brings new life. Know that this is the God that fills us and empowers us by his spirit to press on in him. A few years ago, I had the pleasure of getting to know Cass Sweden. Cass was this incredible guy. Um, and I've, Cass has actually known me my entire life. I grew up at the church that Cass uh, was at. And a few years ago, when I was pastoring, when I was a youth pastor, Cass showed up at our church. And he knew me, he's close with my dad, and so we connected and we started spending time together. And Cass is someone that God brought about new life in. Cass, uh, when he was young, uh, was a card shark in Vegas. And he met his wife, who was a showgirl in Vegas from England. They got married and they moved to Albuquerque. And when they moved to Albuquerque, uh, Cass's job is Cass ran the illegal sports book in New Mexico. He was a bookie. 
He ran the sports betting here. And by his own admission, he would say, I lived a rough and tumble and a hard partying life. He said, I did a lot of hard things. But one day he got invited to church. He started going to church because his wife wanted to go to church. And so he started going and God totally transformed Cass. In fact, I remember this was one of the funnier things. When he told me that he was a bookie, he said, yeah, I used to keep the books. And I was like, oh, like, do you still do bookkeeping? And he's like, no, Jesus told me I had to stop. Um, and I was like, oh, sports booking. Um, but he quit his, he told me, we sat down at lunch one time, he said, I quit my hard ways. God changed who I was. And in fact, he became a leader in the church, and he became a lay pastor for many people, although he would never claim that title. A lot of people would call him their pastor. And he was a faithful party, party or, or follower of Jesus. And that hard partying background was captivated by the good news of the gospel. Two weeks ago, another pastor, a good friend of mine and myself, went and did uh, the final visitation for Cass as he was at home on hospice. And we sat in the room with him. We prayed over him. He couldn't really speak, although he perked up and prayed a little with us. And he's been battling, all, he had been battling Alzheimer's for many years and passed away uh, last week. And while we were sitting with his wife, we asked her how she was doing and how she was feeling about Cass going. She said, Cass has fought the good fight. Cass has lived a good life. God made Cass new, and now God gets to make Cass even more new. And she said, the only regret I have is that he's not taking me with him. See, what she understood is that we serve the God who makes all things new because she'd seen it. The God of resurrection, the God who walks through the valleys of death with us, and we fear no evil because of it. And the God who gives us hope, even under the specter of death. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we know the Spirit in the valleys and have hope in the God that restores. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you that in the midst of our own brokenness, that we're saved by your grace through faith, not by works. And that we're not just saved so that we can do better and try harder, but God, that you've saved us and you transformed us and that you walk with us in life hand in hand. Lord, I ask, Lord, for those of us in here that follow you, that you would meet us there. God, that you would help us to remember that in the midst of our struggles. And God, for those who don't know you, Lord, I ask that you would bring new life to them too. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are the God who is with us in all the valleys and at the highest of mountaintops. It's in your name we pray. Amen.